This sermon, We Are Gospel Centered, was preached by Tim Lambros on Sunday, August 8th, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Now open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. As Derek mentioned, we are in a series that we are calling Grounded, uh, our seven shared values, and um, particularly grateful that I got this assignment. I was sharing with Derek uh, this morning that when we started the church, we looked out and said, Lord, help us build a gospel-centered church. And 21 years later, uh, with plenty of imperfections, and absolutely with John's uncle's t-shirt in mind, (laughs) great t-shirt, by the grace of God, we've watched him build a gospel-centered church. And certainly we have areas to grow in, but very gratifying to me, I'm sure Scott McLeod, the, the only other lone brother I can think of, and his wife that's been here from the beginning, it's, it's uh, been a wonderful, wonderful journey, and I better get to the sermon or I'll start to tear up or something here. Um, but I do want to make this point, and, and, and I hope you don't mind us constantly repeating it. When we say our seven shared values, it's not like in the beginning we said, oh, we're going to be an evangelistic church, or we're going to be, to be a feed the poor church, or we're, 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 we're going to be a social justice church and then go grab some scriptures to justify our agenda. No, when we say our seven shared values, is a careful study of the Bible and ask the question, Lord, when you were forming New Testament churches, what were the common doctrinal unity items that surface from Holy Scripture? And we believe these seven accurately reflect uh, those biblical values. Last week being we are reformed, this week being we are gospel-centered So with that in mind, would you stand? I want to read 1 Corinthians 15. If you're new around here, we like to stand just to give reference to the reading of God's word. Obviously, the most important words you're going to hear uh, from this pulpit this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read verses 1 through 8. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Please take your seats while I pray. Well, Lord, it really is a great privilege to bring something so crucial, essential, central of first importance 
in Paul's words today. Probably for many a reminder, probably for many of us a good reminder, maybe for some an absolute eye-opening experience. We trust all that to you. And would you help this imperfect messenger attempt to preach your word accurately this morning to the edification of these fine folks here today. And more importantly, for your glory and your honor, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at birth in 1951, the doctors told some new parents that their son had a condition called macrocephaly, macrocephaly, a condition where you have an enlarged head, but in this case, a double trouble because in this enlarged head, the bundle of nerves that connect both hemispheres and the brain were not there. They were missing. The doctors gave all sorts of bad news. At nine months, the doctor said he would never be able to talk or walk, and he should just simply be put into an institution. I'm really tempted to say something here about trusting doctors, but I'm not going to. <laughs> this is great for a life story, actually. At one year old, this boy started memorizing entire books that were read to him for the first time. At age seven, he memorized every single word in the Bible. Kids, seven years old and older, you got some work to do. He grew up with a rare condition called savant syndrome. Most savants have a mastery of one to three subjects. This person was known as a mega savant because he had a mastery of 15 different subjects. You might, know him, you might not know that his name is Kim Peek, but you probably know his story through the award-winning Dustin Hoffman 1988 movie called Rain Man. Kim Peek had absolutely astounding mathematical skills, but not only that, he knew history. He knew sports. He knew space. He knew geography. He did this interesting thing with calendar events. If I told him I was born 6860 in seconds, he'd say, oh, so you were born on a Friday then. Just amazing. What baffled the doctors the most is he taught himself to read a book where this eye would read this page and this eye would read this page and he could read an entire book in an hour with a 98% memorization of that content. But the story, oh, and then uh, he, by the time he died, he had total recall of like 9,000 books. When he was little and mommy read him a Dr. Seuss book or whatever, he would turn it upside down to tell the parents that he's already got that one memorized, and he'd continue that his entire life. 9,000 books turned upside down. <laughs> but the event in his life that's appropriate for today is he went to a Shakespeare play, Twelfth Night, apparently, and as the play was ending, one of the actors skipped the second to the last verse. And Kim Peek, who I didn't read about this, why I assume probably had some social filtering uh, lacking of skills, stood up and yelled out, stop it, stop it, stop it, three times. So startled was the actor that he publicly apologized for skipping the second to the last verse, saying, it's almost identical to the final verse. I didn't think it was very important. And Kim Peek said back to him, 
<laughs> no social skills. It was important to Shakespeare. It should be important to you. And I kind of feel like that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has spoken of the gospel throughout this book. He opened up the first couple chapters, reminding, rehearsing, explaining, and much more deep, though, the gospel to these Corinthians, each time that he brought correction to some area that they were messing up, they were confused, and so forth. And here, Paul revisits the gospel again, in shortened, maybe creedal form, but he is getting ready to talk about some really cool stuff, and if you're like me, you'd be like, let's just get past this, man, being changed in an instant, a new body, oh, I want to get to that good stuff. But like smelling salts, sometimes we just need to be awakened up to what really matters. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. Let's reread these verses again. Verses 1 through 3. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the euangelion, the evangel, the good news of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. With one sentence, Paul has just reminded this group of Christians of the vastness of the gospel. Secondly, he just told them, this is not something that he made up at the Pharisee of Pharisee schools that he brought to them that's new and he wants to... No, no. He received it, as we'll see in a minute. He preached it. This is what they first believed. This is what they are standing on. And this is what is saving them. It's not a gospel that says, I'm okay, you're okay. It's not a gospel that says, live this way. It's not a gospel, well, it does say that, <laughs> anchored in living this way. It's not a gospel that says uh, that God is love and has a wonderful life for your plan. No, Paul is going to anchor this gospel in some serious content here in just a moment. But like a smelling salt, Paul wants to wake them up because he's about to bring more clarity to their confusion about what happens to us when we die, and like the First Corinthian church, we need a wake-up at times. We need the smelling salts to remind us of what really matters. And Paul uses language in verse 3, For I delivered up to you what is of first importance. And that's our first point today, the gospel of first importance we are a gospel-centered church because the gospel is of first importance as we see it directly stated here in verse 3. But notice what he says next. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I didn't manufacture this. I received it. I preached it to you. You're standing upon it. You're being saved by it. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. In Paul's way of summarizing, he goes right to probably the most powerful five words you'll see in the Bible. Christ died for 
our sins. Now we're into content of his summary. He adds, in accordance with the scriptures, to emphasize this has been preached, maybe in a veiled way, but this is not something, again, that I dreamed up. I received it. I delivered. Christ died for our sins. And then that he was buried, fully God, fully man. He was put in a grave. He physically died. Fact. On the third day, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he made these appearances. And of course, appearances in the first century, that was the gold standard of evidence. Not appearances, uh, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses were like the gold standard of, of historical veracity, if you will. And Paul states it very clearly and very succinctly. And that challenged me. That challenged me. Yes, Paul is doing the smelling salt thing, the wake-up call, because he's about to get into some more clarification. We're all tempted to want to get to the fun, really cool stuff of life or even the scriptures. But I was challenged, like, how, how would I summarize the gospel? Around here for years, we've asked people before they join the church, hey, share in a minute or so how you would describe the gospel. What's your, what's your understanding of the gospel. So I recreated mine. It was fun. I think it's about a minute. If you have one of those phones that times it, you can time me here. I'm gonna, I haven't got it memorized yet, but I'm going to share what I came up with, like the Apostle Paul, to summarize the gospel in a minute or so. The gospel is so simple, we can profoundly bring the message that saves people, and yet we can talk about it all day long and we give our life to it, to study it, in the depths of it, and yet let's not overlook the simplicity of it. So here's, here's my best shot. There is one God, one true God, who is creator of all things and created you and created me in his image. He created us to know him. He created us to love and to worship him, to talk to him. But we sinned, and we cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus And took on human form and lived an absolutely perfect life. He fulfilled every aspect of the law and died on a cross, taking on the punishment for all those who would eventually turn from their sins and put their trust in him. God poured out his holy wrath on his only begotten son. But then Jesus rose from the dead showing us that God had exhausted his righteous anger towards sin and accepted Jesus' sacrifice. God now calls everyone, maybe some in this room, God now calls everyone, everywhere, to turn from their sins and to put their trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins so you can be reconciled back to God, be born again into a new eternal life with God. How'd I do for those who use time of me? All right, I'm a little over, but, you know, it's a good discipline to keep it to a minute. But seriously, that one minute and 19 second message has the power to save. 
If you're here today and you're not sure you're saved, that message with this very imperfect messenger has the power to transform you from death to life right now. And if there's conviction going in, going on in your hearts, that's a good thing. Cry out to God in your seat right now. Cry out to God if you're out there virtually. Say, would you save me according to this simple summary of the gospel? Paul grounds them with this quick summary of the gospel. And then he's going to go on and explain. We won't get to it today. But he's reminding the Christians there of what is of first importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But why this phrase of first importance? Well, first of all, Paul never uses this about all the things he discusses in all his letters, never uses this language that this particular topic is of first importance. There's tons of things that are important in your and I's lives. But there's one thing that is of first importance, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say there's lots of important things going on in your life, things probably come to mind. They are, no disrespect intended, minimal, trivia compared to that which is of first importance. And I think the best way to show this is how Paul demonstrates this in his life. Turn back in this book to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is where Paul spends more time grounding them in the gospel. But listen as I read 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And this would be typical of how Paul begins to address the church through his many letters. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to preach nothing among you except that which was of first importance. Now flip to the other side of our passage, and let's look at Paul's demonstration after the 2 Corinthians letter. To the Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, just a couple pages over. Jump over 2 Corinthians and you'll be there. Paul demonstrating what is of first importance with how he writes his letters. Verse 1, Paul an apostle, introduction. Verse 3, grace and peace to you. Basically, hey, everyone, bless you. I got something to tell you about. Look at verse 6. I am astonished. Assume Paul is yelling here. That's okay. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are running to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quite a different pastoral apostolic letter to the church that has abandoned that which is of first importance. And not only for Paul, you see this all throughout Scripture, and we'll unpack that a little bit more, but I printed out, and we'll have on the screen a little paragraph we have on our website. We are gospel-centered, and the most condensed paragraph we could come up with is this. We believe that the gospel 
the good news of God's saving activity in Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of his redemptive acts, the center of the Bible's story, and the essential message of our faith, life, and witness. We are committed to preaching the gospel, singing the gospel, praying the gospel, and building our churches upon the gospel. Our ultimate hope is that all we do is not our plans and labors, but the perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. That's our attempt to take all that what the Bible says is of first importance and put it in one paragraph. I want to share a story from and give you a book recommendation. Mark Dever's book, C.J. Mahaney wrote the uh, forward in it, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. One of my favorites because if you want to re- review and rehearse the gospel, just read chapter two. I try to do it regularly. If you want to connect your understanding of the gospel and personal witnessing, no better way than to rehearse the gospel and to make sure you are accurate before you go and proclaim it. But all you need to do is read chapter two here, and you've got a great resource. And let me explain when he opens up this chapter, what is the gospel and what we're trying to prevent by being a gospel-centered church. He writes, my friends know that I enjoy words, so sometimes for Christmas I get calendars with interesting stories or word facts. I can't remember on which calendar I read the following account, but I was so struck by it, I made a note of it. I don't know if it's true, but it's a great illustration of the importance of getting your story right. According to this account, a little over 100 years ago, the editor of an English newspaper opened a copy of his paper after it was already for sale, only to find in it a most embarrassing, unintentional, typographical conflation of two stories. One about a patented pig-killing and sausage-making machine, and the other about a gathering in honor of a local clergyman, the Reverend Dr. Mudge, at which he was presented with a gold-headed cane. Here's a portion of that article. Several of Dr. Mulch's, Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday And after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until it reached the hot water tank. Thereupon, he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered him, overpowered one, and that for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments, which is simply astonishing. The doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him, and less time than it takes to write, the pig was cut into fragments and worked up into a delicious sausage. The occasion will be long remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. The best pieces can be procured for a tenpence of, of a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat long under his ministry will rejoice when he has been treated so handsomely. He goes on to say, listen, at the basics... The gospel's a message, and we don't want to have a confusing message. So my challenge to you is, can you summarize the gospel biblically and accurately in about a minute? If not, work on it. If you have just a minute, people ask what you believe in all sorts of different ways. They don't typically walk up and say, I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. Can you tell me about Christianity? They might say, Why do you have faith or why do you have hope or what? Can you share the gospel 
in just a few minutes? Or is it a confusing message like I learned when I took, uh, I think it was with Derek, when I took Brian Chappell's class on homiletics and he shared something that he shares with every seminary, seminary, seminary class about a confused message. He says, each morning the preacher addresses the same, oh, he's talking about a high-profile radio uh, meditation moment that goes out to thousands every morning, okay? Each morning the preacher addresses some topic with a Bible verse or two. The subjects run the gamut from procrastination to parenting to honesty on the job. The station turns up the reverberation whenever the preacher speaks so that it sounds like Though the words come direct, sounds like as though the words come direct from Mount Sinai. Not to pay attention seems like a sin. I would guess that even if, that, that a few even question, I would guess that few even question the content of the man's words. As he reminds us from the Bible to practice punctuality, good parenting, and business propriety, I realize a hundred thousand motorists are nodding their heads and saying in unison, that's right, yes, that's how we should live. I have even played tapes of this preacher's meditations to seminary classes and ask if anyone can discern error in what he says. Rarely does anyone spot a problem. Seminary students, rarely does anyone spot a problem. The preacher quotes his text accurately. He advocates moral causes. He encourages loving behaviors. The problem that I point out to the students and that is carefully hidden from the broadcast audience is that the radio preacher is not a Christian. He represents a large cult headquartered in our city. The importance of a biblical and accurate understanding of the gospel and being ready both to preach, to speak, and hear gospel content. It is of first importance. Now next we're going to see why it's central to everything we do, everything we do as a church. The gospel at the center is my next point. So let's ask the question, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Well, the uh, self-explanatory thought would be to have everything gospel at the center of what you do. And Paul like I mentioned, is going to bring clarification about what happens to the people when they die, what happens to our bodies, and so forth. Like I mentioned, this is kind of the cool stuff, but he very wisely grounds them before he moves on so that the gospel then becomes the foundation to clarify something like, where do we go after we die? So the gospel must be central for us to Clarify and have biblical clarity on so many things in our life. In fact, if you read your Bible accurately from Genesis to Revelation, you should walk away with the conclusion that the Bible is gospel-centered. So why are we gospel-centered? Because the Bible is gospel-centered. It's as simple as as that. A couple ways to reinforce that thought. If you think about the shape of Scripture, how God recorded his revelation of himself, you only have two chapters of total bliss in Genesis. Creation, Garden of Eden, 
That's one shape. Chapter three is the fall. That's the next shape. From then till the last chapter of the Bible, it's redemption, God's redeeming work. That's the third shape of scripture. And Revelation is that ultimate time when God recreates everything. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation, you could say, is the shape of Scripture. It's centered on this gospel story. Jesus Christ is the chief character in it. You might also say that the Gospels, the four Gospels, are the only Bible writings that are repeated. There's four episodes. There's four books about the life and work of Jesus Christ. That's part of the shaping of how God left us his holy word. And I mentioned before, or we read in our, our little summary on our website, that Jesus's activity, God's work through Christ. Pause that. God has lots of redemptive works we can see in Scripture, but the very pinnacle of those are shaped in Scripture to be those surrounding Jesus Christ. He's the pinnacle of God's redemptive activity. You could also argue that uh, to be gospel-centered is good because the Bible is gospel-centered. Not only does the Bible have a shape to it, but the Bible says it directly. I won't be exhaustive here, but Paul writes in Acts 20, 24, you can go look these up. Uh, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Doing what is of most importance, doing what is at the center of missionary Activity. If you go and do a study on Luke 24, you might remember in your Bibles the road to Emmaus, the two disciples. Jesus directly says, in really a veiled rebuke of these two disciples, they shouldn't be surprised because all the Old Testament is about me. Verse 27 and verse 44 and 45 of that chapter. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, everything he had achieved was nothing like dung compared to just knowing the Savior. So over and over again, the the scriptures are gospel-centered. Here's some help in reading scripture. Listen, no matter where you're at in the Bible, all the Old Testament scriptures prepare and predict the work of Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament scriptures Sometimes you've got to dig a little. Sometimes you've got to study a little bit. But when you read the word, if you put on that lens of they predict and they prepare the work of Christ, the four gospels explain the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the rest of the New Testament is what results from the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is Jesus-centered, gospel-centered. If you want to have a fancy term for your friends, you're Christocentric. That's what it means to have the Bible at the core, at the center of your belief, your church, your convictions. So it becomes what is essential. To be central, to have the gospel as central is you've got a message 
That is essential. That's why we love quoting Jerry Bridges. God bless him. He's with the Savior. But this great line, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. There's a lot of important messages out there, but there's one that is essential, and it's central to the Bible and central to how we think and believe in this church. And just a pastoral moment, church, we lose our grip on that reality. We wake up desiring to be centered on the gospel, and we fight because we so easily drift. We fumble the ball, you might say. And then in a day, in a week, in a month, now the gospel's on the periphery of our life thinking and conviction. We have to continue to understand that it's work in this fallen world to keep the gospel central in your life, in your thinking, in your ministries, and so forth. So it is essential in this church. It is truly of first importance. Therefore, it should show up in more places than just your website that says, oh yeah, the gospel's important to us. Does it? So a couple areas we work hard at. The, bio, the essential message, the central message of the gospel must be central in preaching. The Bible doesn't just call preachers to preach good behavior. Five ways to be more patient. That's gospel-less, that's without Christ, that any unbeliever could grow in. That's not how biblical preaching occurs. The Bible doesn't call preaching that has Christ at the center of it to get off on peripheral issues. You don't come into this pulpit. This sign says, preacher, we wish to see Jesus. So we don't push social justice. We don't push causes. We're here to make Jesus central in every message. Does that affect social cause? Absolutely. Does that affect behavior? Absolutely. But if you read the book of Ephesians, you've got a great preacher's manual. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, all about the glories of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1, look it up. Therefore, I can just hear James, Derek. I can just hear him. Don't be doers, don't, don't be hearers only. <laughs> so in Ephesians 4, therefore, here's how you're going to apply and change your life on the foundation of this gospel being central. Must be in preaching. Community groups. Listen, you've heard us say this before. Community groups are not a place just to go gather up Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge is great. The word doesn't go out void, but we are Bible knowledge and application. We are, what does the word say and how are you applying it kind of community groups? Let's open up our Bibles. Let's help people who might have drifted this week, who might not have the gospel central. Maybe they're thinking behavior. Maybe they're wrestling through guilt. Let's help people get back on the railroad tracks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As smart people like to say that I read, bring the gospel to your address, where you live, boots and ground kind of life. 
Children's curriculum, yes. If the gospel is central, it should affect your children's curriculum. Listen, the point of David defeating Goliath is not, now Johnny, go out and be courageous. That's not the point. That's not a Christocentric view of the great story in 1 Samuel. No, the point is there's one who came that has conquered all. You can have courage in Jesus Christ that he will be there in those moments of need. All throughout scripture, we do it the wrong way. We teach man-centered versus Christ-centered, gospel-centered lessons. Counseling. In this church, whether it's formal counseling with a pastor or fellowship with a community group leader, leader and fellow believer, we believe that there's a place for a counseling community. There is a confidence in the beginning that the gospel has shoulders to be the cure of souls. Doesn't mean we don't use other means, but there's a confidence in the beginning that the gospel is powerful enough to deal with what you're dealing with at your address right now. So another application question. Are you a Witham Bible reader? Some of you out here know what Witham means. Are you a Witham Bible reader? What's in it for me? That's the wrong way to read the Bible. That doesn't keep the gospel central. Do you read the Bible with a gospel lens? Do you see and look for Jesus in every passage of Scripture? If you read it man-centered, you're missing the power that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is help for man. There's real help. But that has to come in the context of the power of the gospel and the glory of our Lord. Here's another application question. Can you explain the gospel from scripture? If you got more than a minute, I remember a guy saying, man, I got to share the gospel with a friend last week. We spent all day Friday talking about the gospel. I'm like, wow, where did you go in scripture? He says, I just walked him through Romans. It's like, that's fantastic. Do you have places, if God grants you a longer conversation, do you, know, do you see Jesus in Genesis, in Leviticus? Do you see the gospel in the book of Numbers? What about 1 Samuel? Isaiah, Hosea. We're going to open up the book of Haggai in a couple of weeks. Take some time to go read those chapters. Look for Jesus in Haggai. Be a great assignment for our preaching series after this one. So we're gospel centered because the Bible's gospel centered. It's not just a list of things that we decided to do in advance and we grabbed some verses to support that. No, no, no. The Bible is gospel-centered. Therefore, we have no choice. We must be gospel-centered. So we make that our aim. That's always our goal. We do it imperfectly. But now, for this third point, let's look at where we place our hope. If the gospel is central 
in Scripture, if the gospel is our goal, our aim, now we really can have hope. And my third point is the gospel as our ultimate hope. I'm going to draw your attention to that last line in that paragraph under We Are Gospel Centered on our website. It says, our ultimate hope in all that we do is not our plans and labors, but the perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. Yes, we put our hands to the plow. Yes, we work. Yes, we plan. Yes, we labor. But our deepest, ultimate hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In our text, he said, The gospel that I preached to you that you received. Remember in the text? That you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Our hope is in this active work of the gospel, but when you see in scripture, the Bible uses the word salvation, it's what Paul's talking about here. He says three different verb tenses here, in which you received. There was a time that you received the gospel and You were born again. It's a one-time event. And at that point in time, your hope now, your trust now is that the penalty of sin has been broken, has been erased. Because of the personal work of Jesus Christ, I will no longer face the penalty of sin. I have received the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved... That's the gospel, that's salvation in a continuing sense, doing a work in your life. What's that work? Slowly but surely actually making you more holy, more righteous, sinning less, you could say. Theologically, the power of sin is being weakened in your life. The pull of sin has less grip on your life. That's where this church stands. Paul wants to remind him, that's which you are being saved. Wait a minute, I was already saved. Yeah, you were saved from the penalty of sin. Now you're being saved from the power of sin. And he doesn't mention this, but we like to remind ourselves that there's places where the Bible talks about salvation in that day. It'll be instantaneous. And we'll be delivered from the very presence of Sin. (coughs) Our hope is in the work of the gospel that we received, the gospel that we stand on, the gospel that is saving us, and the gospel that will ultimately save us. That's our ultimate hope. And here's how it reads in our statement of faith that I put on that handout. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he did in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to accomplish salvation for humanity. Therefore, the gospel is not a human action or achievement 
but rather an objective, historical, divine achievement that remains true and unchanging regardless of human opinion or response. The gospel stands as the core message of the Bible, which in all of its parts testifies to God's saving acts culminating in the person and work of Christ. Now here's the sentence. This good news is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, providing hope for the lost and abiding comfort and strength for the believer. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, for there is no other name given under heaven in which we must be saved. That's a powerful sentence, and there's dozens of scriptures you can go online and do a Bible study and understand. I bring all that up to, like Paul, anchor us in the right hope. We fumble the gospel. We let loose of our grip on the gospel. And now all of a sudden, how I feel about something is the most important. Now all of a sudden, my experience years ago, where I was sinned against, is most important. Now all of a sudden, the tradition that I have in my family or in my church or my denomination is most important. And we fumble the gospel. And so Paul reminds them again. Let me just read verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And he made appearances to people. The only way you can put to death your emotions ruling your hearts, your desires driving your behavior, the guilt you have from sinning yet again is to remember the gospel events are objective. Let me just draw your attention to one word in here. It's so easy to read over it. In verse 3 he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance... What I also received. You see that word that? See that word that? Paul is going outside of any human experience. Paul is going outside of any performance. Paul is going outside of you and I and saying that, those objective saving events are of first importance, are central to the gospel message and provide our ultimate hope because they are outside of us. It's not depending on how I feel. Church, this is meant to shape and inform everything in our life. The gospel brings hope because it informs every aspect of this fallen world. Maybe not directly, but it informs everything you and I need to think through. It inspires, it motivates us that have been born again to glorify God and understanding through a gospel lens. In a word we could say, it makes sense of everything. Having our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ make sense of everything. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? I'm going to borrow a line from our Dean of our pastor's college, Jeff Perswell, the gospel alone is to be the governing reality for the Christian life. 
The gospel alone is to be the governing reality of the Christian life or there is no hope. That is our hope. Let me share one more story with you. I know a few of you get Paul Tripp's Wednesday's word. This came in this week. And it's this experience. I'm very thankful to this day for my seminary training, but the one primary deficiency was that it was almost exclusively focused on the public teaching and preaching aspect of the Word of God. As a result, I entered the pastorate unprepared to apply the Bible in the context of personal ministry situations, locations, and relationships. I will never forget my first call to help as a new pastor. The husband was addicted to both drugs and alcohol. His wife was severely depressed. They had four children who suffered from the results of all the above. I was 26 26 years old and felt like I was jumping into the deep end of the pool. Well, you felt that way because you were, having never taken a swim lesson. Their house was only a few blocks away from where Luella and I lived, so I walked over. My hands were clammy, my heart was racing, and the journey felt like miles. Finally, I arrived, and the husband was upstairs vomiting the results of the addiction that so enslaved him. To be completely honest, I was terrified, and I wanted to say a few words and get out just as quickly as I could. But the Lord, in his power and mercy, met all of us for the first time that night. Only explained by the presence of the Holy Spirit, I did something that would become the theme of my life and ministry. I connected the transforming power of Jesus Christ to everyday life. I helped this family see their living, active Redeemer and how his power was at work right here, right now. In my words, He gave them hope, the ultimate place for hope for a messed up six-person household set of lives. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mr. Tripp has done a lot of conferences. His hope was not in his conference agenda. His hope was not in his position of a pastor. His hope was not in his attitude, his bad attitude walking down the street, no, like we said in our statement, our ultimate hope in all we do is not our plans and labors, but the perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection and glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. My final application question, and then I'll close, is this. Do you review where your hope is? for the things that happen at your address. Do you take time to review that there's one ultimate hope when you go into a conflict, when you get asked to go help someone, when you're reaching out to a neighbor and then you hear the story? Take time to review the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our ultimate hope.